Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, we are talking to Mark Nevitt, a retired Navy JAG who is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, did some time as a line officer before coming over to the JAG Corps, and is retired. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to have you, Tom, and uh, thanks for what you're doing. You're doing a great job with this, this podcast. And just one small correction, actually taught the Naval Academy briefly but I actually graduated from University of Pennsylvania under a Naval ROTC scholarship back in the 90s. And now that I look at your LinkedIn profile again, I see that you were the distinguished professor. So they say a sign of a true man is the willingness to admit that he's wrong. And I am admitting that I was wrong. Who better to know his life than the person who lived it? <laughs> so, Mark, we, we go back to about, what, 2000 and eight or nine over in Naples, Italy. Yes, I remember that time very fondly, really a very rewarding time in my life when uh, you and I met. I think you were the executive officer of the Regional Legal Service Office, and I was in the beautiful C4I unwindowed building on the Sixth Fleet Capodacino Spine. And I was told it was going to be sort of a quiet tour. And then within a few weeks of getting there, Russia invaded Georgia, and it was quite the opposite. Wow. What old is new? So that's about a six to seven year RPM with them invading Georgia, then invading Crimea, and now the Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. That was a very rewarding time in Italy. And Tom, it was great working and serving with you over in Naples, Italy. And I try to tell all the young Jags that come through law school or aspiring Jags, if you have an opportunity to go overseas, go overseas. Because the one thing you can do in the Navy, which is very, very hard to do in private practice or outside the military. And so I was just giving a lecture yesterday in my constitutional law class. And I said, if you have an opportunity to go overseas, by all means, go overseas because it's just a great experience. You've already given away what you're doing. You're in academia, but let's rewind the tape. So University of Pennsylvania, right? Yes, sir. Class in 97, very small naval ROTC unit in Philadelphia. I think we commissioned eight or nine people from UPenn, and then I went off to Navy flight school right after I graduated from Penn. And what'd you fly? I flew this dinosaur of an aircraft called the S-3 Viking, which is no longer in existence. I flew off the aircraft carrier USS Constellation, which is no longer in existence. And so I realized after doing that, I had to find something else to do if I wanted to stay in the Navy. See, now we have another touch point because I have stick time on the S-3 being launched from the USS Nimitz. We got up and my friend Todd Tobin turned it over to me and let me act like I was flying for an hour and a half and, and got the land. How long did you do that? I did that. I did naval aviation for six years. Actually, it's funny how small the community is. I know Todd Tobin as well. The Navy Law Education Program is a little bit challenging for aviators like myself because you have X amount of time after you get your wings and flight school is about two years. And so I was able to get the Law Education Program right under the six-year window in accordance with the Navy instruction. So I was a senior kind of mid-grade lieutenant starting law school and starting a whole new part of my Navy journey. So law school was where? I went to Georgetown. Heard of it. Yes. And then take us to just a quick overview of JAG career. 
Sure. You know, had a great Navy JAG career. Started out as the Naval Legal Service Office branch head in Lemoore, California. I was hoping to go to San Diego where I spent a lot of my aviation time, but actually had a great experience in Lemoore where I got a lot of leadership experience and courtroom experience. This is before the first tour judge advocate program up front. So, you know, whatever came into your office came in your office. Then I went to Six Fleet, spent two and a half years there, met you, Tom, met some great people, worked with some real legends of the JAG Corps, Jay Crisfield, John Fink, Rock Tolve, who's still in the Navy JAG Corps, Dave Furry, Rob Monahan. And then I went to be a flag eight in the back in DC and I got picked up for an LLM program back at Georgetown for environmental law. And so the Navy has a fair amount of uh, education invested in me. After the JAG Corps postgraduate program, the LLM program at Georgetown was the Department of Defense Regional Environmental Council in Norfolk, Virginia, working environmental law, bread and butter issues, really enjoyed that. And a lot of climate issues were becoming more and more important. Norfolk is sort of at the front lines of climate. And then I went back to the Pentagon, completed my JAG career at OJAG Code 13, and served there with some of the really the best young lieutenants and officers the Navy has that I think will do very well in their future. So that was a wonderful 20-year career. Very difficult decision to leave the Navy, Tom. To be frank, I really love the Navy, love my time in the Navy, but I think it was up for the next challenge. So, and that next challenge is teaching? Yes, academia. I was interested in, and it really started, I think, when I had my LLM program, which is a really nice time for mid-career JAGs to sort of think through, uh, take a pause on what they want to do in the JAG or what they want to do outside of life. You have a little more headspace, a little bit more time to think through what you want to do because a lot of your schedule is yours. And so that's a really nice time to kind of make connections. And I, and I met some connections getting my LLM program. And I thought maybe being an academic would be a really interesting job. I liked mentoring. One of the key things that I'm interested in doing and, and do a lot of is writing and sort of the tenure track academic positions. Almost half of it is scholarship and writing. And I found out I really enjoyed writing, writing long articles and some blogs as well during my LLM program. Bit of a path to get that tenure track position after leaving the Navy. How did you start approaching? How did you position yourself to be able to get that first teaching job? The teaching academic market can be filled, I think, in sort of three different buckets, Tom. The one I was striving towards was sort of to be a tenure track academic professor, writing, teaching, scholarship. That's sort of the first bucket I was sort of striving for. There's other sort of buckets. Second bucket would be an academic administration, leadership role. It's not tenure track, but it's a clearer fit, a clearer use of your military leadership skills. And then the third bucket would be sort of being an adjunct where you can have a full-time job and then you do that sort of a part-time. But to do the tenure track academic market, it's pretty competitive. It's very difficult to make that leap from U.S. Navy judge advocate straight to tenure track position. And so to be competitive, you need to have really three things. One is a clerkship, a federal clerkship. The fancier, the better. The Supreme Court is a very credentialed sort of line of employment. So that's not on the table for an AV Jack. Just doing a federal clerkship is very, very difficult. The second, have a doctorate. About half or more of the people who get tenured track positions in legal academia have both a JD and a PhD. That's also very challenging for a JAG to get. You know, you do, I guess, maybe part-time. But the third one you can do after, which is sort of a bridge, which is doing an academic fellowship. Sometimes they're labeled as visiting assistant professorships. So when I was leaving, I think about leaving the Navy, Tom, I really was focused on sort of the fellowship market, knowing that to be competitive for a tenure track position, I need a couple of years of sort of minor league baseball before I'm ready for the pros. And so I'm happy to chat with you about what that looked like. 
Please do. I mean, I myself probably won't go into academia, but there's probably others, hopefully, that are listening to this that are thinking that this is something that they're interested in. And so the floor is yours. Sure, Tommy. I would say that one of the things that uh, one of the themes from your podcast, which I've enjoyed listening to, is reaching out to other JAGs who are kind of similarly situated. So there's about a 10 or 12 JAGs out there that have similar tenure track positions. Most of them actually in the Army or Air Force. Jeff Korn, Rachel Van Landingham, Eric Jensen at BYU, Chris Jenks at Southern Methodist. And they all helped me out tremendously on making that pretty big pivot from, from the Navy to an academic. And so the fellowship, and I did a fellowship at University of Pennsylvania, again, their, their law school, which allowed me to be surrounded by faculty. It gave me more time to write. It also gave me time to think, is this something I really want to do? The position itself is heavily writing, it's legal scholarship, it's teaching, preparing civilian law school classes, which is different from military classes. So that kind of gave me the confidence that one, I could do this. And also, this is something that I'm very interested in. It also gives you the opportunity to meet other academics who can sort of vouch for you. (laughs) So it's hard to sort of do that in the Navy. A lot of your commanders and commanding officers can vouch for you and support you. But the fellowship really helped me do that. And I should say too, during my LLM program, it's another positive the Navy does send you to that. You can really meet some academics and other people outside the Navy. And I did that. I was very purposeful in doing that and had one mentor in particular who really was instrumental in helping me out along the way. From there, I mean, you did this fellowship. Where would you do that fellowship at? I did back at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and right. So what I did, Tom, was I was applying. And I actually was thinking about maybe taking a little bit of time off just because I'd done a geo batch with my wife. We got married after Italy. She was in DC. I was in Norfolk. The Pentagon was a busy job. And I thought about taking a little bit of time off, but the fellowship does give you a lot of time to yourself. (laughs) And so I applied to these fellowships and I got a few of them, which I was very, I think, lucky to get them because a bit of a non-traditional applicant. And I was looking at New York University or a fellowship at at UPenn. Most of the sort of top law schools have these fellowships to help groom you to be an academic. And so I went back to Penn. I knew the university. And that was an exceptional two years I spent there. You were worldwide deployable as far as teaching. You were willing to relocate anywhere? So not exactly. (laughs) Yeah, not exactly. There was obviously negotiations with my wife on that. We're staying in DC. She's a lawyer. She's DC based. And the fellowship at Penn, I was teaching not at all in the fall semester. And so the goal would, I would show up there as much as I can to integrate with the faculty, have coffees, talk, attend forums, conferences. And then I taught my first class in the spring after I left the Navy. And that was just one day a week. What was that class? It was a national security law class. And that was rewarding just because it was very much, you prepare the syllabus, you do the readings, you think about this thing called pedagogy, how you'll teach. And that was a really great experience because a lot of autonomy was given to you and how you led a, you know, a very smart group of you know, young Penn Law students through the process. From Penn, you went to where? So it was a bit serendipitous and I've had a bit of an interesting post-Navy career. 
in that I was on the market for an academic job and I was doing what's called job talks. I'm happy to talk about what that entails at different universities. But essentially to get a tenure track position at a law school, it's really difficult at the entry level. And that's because the tenure rates are very, very high at law schools compared to other social sciences and hard sciences. I don't know the exact data on it, but it's somewhere north of 90% of tenure uh, rate. So the entry-level market is sort of a critical decision on whether or not a faculty wants to hire you because you're maybe signing up for a lifetime appointment with this particular person. So the interview itself can be very, very long and somewhat stressful. It starts with really two days. You go to university, you have dinner with a series of faculties, uh, members. And then the next day, it's a eight to 10 hour series of interviews. In the middle of those interviews is what's called the job talk, where you give an academic presentation to faculty on a piece of scholarship you're writing. And then they essentially ask questions and sort of grill you <laughs> and, and critique your scholarship during that time. Following that period, you come up for a faculty vote on whether or not they want to offer you a tenure track position. So I, while I was going through this at Penn, sort of serendipitous, Tom, the Naval Academy was hiring their first civilian law professor in, mm -hmm. in quite some time. And I threw my hat in the ring for it because I thought it'd be a neat position. And I actually got it. And I served as the Distinguished Military Professor of Leadership and Law after the University of Pennsylvania. And I did that uh, for about one year or so. And I really, really enjoyed my time there. But I got another call <laughs> from Syracuse, where I physically am right now, uh, while I was in the Naval Academy. And, and I thought that if I wanted a chance at a civilian law school, this was going to be probably it. So how did your name get out to Syracuse? Was it through your scholarship, your writing? I think part of it was writing. And part of it, I had done a quick interview with them earlier in the year. And they weren't hiring in my field. They were looking at health law. I should say, for people who are looking at academia, these tenure track positions, you need to think about what first year class or sort of core classes you can teach. Very few schools are hiring specifically for just national security law. May have a few, like Syracuse is one of the rare exceptions for that, Georgetown as well, and a few others. But it's really what first year curriculum needs can you fit? So for military justice people, that's criminal law, criminal procedure. Operational law people, you have to think through what field that might be, what class that might be. Environmental law is a core area. Every faculty has got an environmental law practitioner. But you need to make sense about what your first year curriculum would be, Tom. So for me, I, I thought I could teach constitutional law or property. And they had a hiring need in, in both of those, uh, mostly constitutional law at Syracuse. And because I had an interview with them earlier, I was sort of fresh in their minds as someone who could maybe fill, fill that role. You've described your career. You did the bread and butter Nilso stuff. You went off, you got your LLM, you were in the Sixth Fleet building there, and then came back, did Code 13 and left. But what was it that gave you the expertise or gave you the background on the national security law piece that was enabled to you to be hired for that role? Where did, where did you develop that expertise? I think most of that came from scholarship. They're looking heavily at scholarship. And so when I was getting my LLM program, I was really purposeful in trying to get a big law review article out. I had regretted that I did not write anything scholarly in my JD program at Georgetown. And I did. As part of that process, it sort of gave you confidence to develop more potential legal scholarship. And so I actually wrote a few law review articles while I was still in the Navy, Tom. 
Mm. And, you know, that's the, one of the benefits maybe of geobatching as a commander in Norfolk is you have some time at night where you're too old to go out with the JOs and you can put your mind to work. And so I, I wrote a few articles actually in Norfolk, mostly on environmental issues and, and on climate issues. And so not just being a national security person, but being a core environmental person, I think certainly helped because there is a core need for environmental law courses and course offerings. So I think it was probably scholarship itself. And also had teaching evals from my time as a fellow. So when I was up for consideration for these positions, I could show the hiring committee, here's my teaching evals from Penn. But I think that to get the Penn position, I had to have a little bit of academic scholarship already. Yeah. So I'm looking, you know, I think back to my law school tenure and what you were saying about tenured professors. And, you know, I, I had people that had been there for two or more decades. But looking at your experience, you sort of got this law school tenure track position, but you didn't understand that you don't have to take new orders every couple of years. Uh, right. you've, you've, you've mentioned you're at Penn, you've been to Naval Academy, Georgetown's Syracuse, and now you're hitting the road again. Yeah, I don't know if it just means I can't keep a job, Tom. I don't know what this means exactly. But one of the things is once you're sort of in the tenure track position, other schools have constant needs. And so I did what's called a lateral move in the process of doing that Emory Law School in Atlanta. And so I interviewed with them over the fall. And that was a decision I made with my wife. We thought the employment opportunities would be better for her in Atlanta. She's also an attorney. But I got an offer basically that was just too good to pass up from Emory. And one of the benefits of Emory is Lori Blank is one of the professors down there who, who runs the International Humanitarian Law Clinic. So I can keep my hand in the national security game as well. Sound like you had a plan all along. And maybe you didn't. I mean, what went into that factor of hey, 20 is the right mark? You had enough of the Navy, you had enough experiences in the Navy, or what was it that caused you to, to start that chapter earlier? That's a good question. Uh, you know, and uh, the leave in the Navy was a very difficult decision. And if you talk to people who worked with me, Captain Ava Lozier and Steve Molesky, I think I had my retirement papers on my desktop for six to eight months. And I, I had a really hard time turning them in because I was really dedicated to Navy. I, I was I loved that time in the Navy. I think for me, it was just a recognition that I wanted to do something else. And the longer I waited, the more difficult it would be, particularly for these academic positions. Also, I got married a little bit later in life, Tom, to be frank. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife is, if everybody knows my wife, Sarah, she's far smarter than I am. And it was important for us to keep our careers both going along and you get orders. And I, I knew doing another geo batch would be very, very difficult on us as a family. So just a combination of different things. I also kind of wanted to leave the Navy on a, on a happy note. And we've all seen people who, who maybe stay on too long. And <laughs> no, I'm not looking at you, Tom. Uh, you're doing great things in a public service of this podcast. But, you know, I wanted to leave the Navy on a positive note. And I felt like I did. I thought I felt like I left it all on the field towards the very end. I had the opportunities to fly jets over aircraft carriers, to serve overseas. I was involved in the Farsi Island investigation uh, during my time at Code 13, mentoring young officers. And, and it just all these different factors led me to believe I've had a great career. It's time to do something else. It wasn't any one decision, Tom, or one mm -hmm. thing. It was just all those factors uh, rolled into one. You seem to have become a very prolific writer. I have been able to write. 
I'll leave it to your podcast listeners to tell me how good the writing is. So just because it's quantitatively high doesn't mean necessarily qualitatively sound or, or good. But I think the military does help out with discipline. And writing is all about essentially putting in the time on a daily basis. And the military helps out with that discipline. So I, I don't know the exact number of law review articles mm. I've done. I, I try to do things like blogs for just security, for lawfare, which get a lot more traction, a lot more readability. I don't want to be the egghead academic guy who is has two people reading his law review articles. I, I want to write scholarly log articles, but also want to be involved in major national security environmental issues uh, du jour of the day. So yeah. I'm actually not sure what my number is. Yeah, it's amazing that you said the military gives you that discipline because, I mean, I'm a cone-headed from Code 13, too. We know that there's some pretty deep writing that goes on there on some pretty nuanced issues. But for most writing that we did as JAGs out in the field, it was always keep it short and sweet and to the point because your audience are decision makers who don't have a lot of time. So it's kind of funny to hear you say that the military gave you that background to be disciplined in your writing. Discipline is just a sort of willingness to show up to the laptop in the morning and put in the time because you get ideas while you write. You don't look for inspiration outside. You have to be in front of the computer and get ideas. I think in the military was always a little bit, especially in operational law, you're sort of putting out fires on a daily basis. And I'll give you one example. When I was in Sixth Fleet, Georgia was invaded by Russia, and we had this discussion of the Montreux Convention. And so we're trying to really discuss the Montreux Convention's relevance to this particular operational aspect of the law. But I always wanted, I always wanted to go deeper on the international law theory, sure. the convention, the so what. So you know, last month, I, I put out another article that really was the article I've always sort of wanted to write on Montreux and the Black Sea in the context of the Ukraine crisis. As an academic, you have the time and ability to do just that versus putting out fires. That really sort of appeals to me, the ability to go deep on some of these, some of these issues, Tom. Do you hear from other JAGs uh, or JAGs, active duty JAGs, who are interested in breaking into the academic market? I do. I'm in contact with some Army JAGs. There aren't a lot of Navy JAGs who are in the tenure track positions. There's a couple. Obviously, James Kraska is at the Naval War College, which I think is tenure track as well. But I think that one of the things I tell people is, do you like to write? And that's something that only you can decide. And did you like law school? I loved law school. I loved my LLM program. For some people, they were just looking to get out of there, past the bar, and, and use it in practice. And so those are sort of key criteria, whether or not you want to be a full-time academic. Take us to, and, and I'm asking this at the 30,000-foot level, so I'm not asking for inside baseball or any trade secrets, but take us through the salary negotiation process. What is that like? So I will say there's two elements to it. For the fellowship, there's not much salary negotiation for that because it's it's considered to be a temporary job. You basically have a built-in expiration date. Rarely you'll get a tenure track position out of that fellowship, but that's not the expectation, Tom. And so with negotiations there, there really wasn't much. It's sort of, here it is. There's a lot of people who want this job. <laughs> and if you turn it down, we'll hire the expert. So you don't get paid a lot of money as, as a fellow, but it's in terms of freedom of what you have, it's incredible. So that what they're asking of you is really to be an academic. And so you have a lot of free time. For the tenure track position, you have more leeway. And I'll say that 
once a faculty comes around you and votes you as a candidate, there's a lot of inertia and investment built in to you as a candidate and getting you to come to the university. So your the negotiation power you have is significantly more. I've always thought that you don't get what you deserve in life, you get what you can negotiate in life. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I think having a spouse who was in the private sector, that was certainly helpful for me. Talking to other JAGs who've gone through the process, that was helpful to me. And the things you can negotiate really are salary. You can negotiate your course load, what courses you might teach, time up for tenure, and sort of things like moving like expenses and things along those lines. You can't negotiate you know, I couldn't negotiate Syracuse season basketball tickets that would have been nice, but it's pretty fluid. And I think that once you get that offer, the expectation is that you will negotiate a little bit from that offer. And people shouldn't feel bad about that. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Of course, for anybody listening to Emory, he sees himself there. But big picture wise, you see yourself doing this to your, as some of my professors until their 70s? Yes, I do. I really do. And one of the things about academia, which I love so much, is I'm surrounded by young students. I just finished my last constitutional law class this last week. And I loved mentoring in the JAG Corps. I love the leadership aspect of it. And the young students keep you young, Tom. They keep you optimistic. They come to law school with a passion and an energy that just carries over to you as a professor. So it's a great job to have for 20, 30, 40 years. Why would you leave, right? You know, I think that I would leave you know, if when I stop feeling to be effective as a teacher or not productive as a writer. So I see myself at Emory for a good long time. If any of your listeners are interested in academia, I'm happy to chat with them, Tom. It's a bit of a niche market. It's a great position, great job. It takes a little bit of work a few years out to, to put yourself in a position to, to get this. But I, I see myself, to answer your question, in academia for a good long time. They'll probably have to wheel me out. What didn't I ask you that I should have? I think you covered most of it, Tom. I think you really need to ask yourself if this is something that you want to do and go purposeful for it. I think is kind of the key, the key question. If you thought of, if you see it being an academic as I like the freedom you have, I like the ability to sort of teach what I want. It's really a lot of autonomy for the job. If you're viewing it through a quality of life perspective that actually is probably not the job for you because I, I work harder actually as a legal academic than I do in the JAG Corps. I'm working on what I want to work on, which is exciting and it doesn't really feel like work. Sure. Um, but it, it, it is a very, very busy job. And I would say, ask yourself, do I want to engage in writing, service, and teaching the big three for academics versus do I want a cushy academic job? Because anything but anything but cushy. I have to say, you look like you're enjoying yourself. You look younger, it, it seems, in a lot of ways because of what you're doing than, than the days in Naples. Maybe that was just the grayness of the day, trying to get through the day so we could go drink wine at night. I don't know. but um, There were some pretty long hours here, Tom. I remember both yeah, of us. Well, said, for you guys. And I mean, we, we worked long hours at the Real So when we were shorthanded, crazy time with the CO gone and everything. Italy was a great time, great place. It seems to have gone too fast. And, you know, it's already been, gosh, 11 years since we left there, almost 11 years. And that's how, that's how fast time flies. But Mark, it's, uh, it was great sitting down with you. It's great catching up. I'm sure that there will be people to say, yeah, I remember that guy. I wonder what became of him. But no, <laughs> you know, I do see 
that your your writings are out there and i wish you the best in all that you do and i hope you enjoy atlanta and uh maybe you'll become atlanta fans now <laughs> we'll work on that tom thanks for you and thanks for doing this podcast it's a real benefit for the proto community so thank you for your for your service to the podcast well thanks mark that means a lot thank you for listening if you like this podcast be sure to subscribe and tell your friends after the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.